Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, Recode Media listeners, I have a favor to ask before we get going. We're conducting an audience survey. We need your help. It takes no more than five minutes. I've done it myself. I can verify this. It will really help the show. You're smart, so you can understand why we do a survey like this. Please visit boxmedia.com slash podsurvey, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you. Okay, now I'm going to formally start the show. This I'm is waiting Rico. for Jason Hershorn to Here put the link to this podcast in his daily email. That person is Dan readers. Porter. <laughs> I'm Peter Kafka. We're going to have a podcast now, Rico Media. Hi, Dan. Hey. Dan is the CEO of Overtime. And before we get to explain what Overtime is, I'm going to run through some, some Dan Porter highlights, some of which I learned on my own, some of which I got from Wikipedia. So some of these may not be true. If they're all highlights, that's fine. If they're lowlights, I deny them. First head of Teach for America? Uh, I was a first president. I mean, Wendy Kopp obviously started Teach for America, but I was on the very first team, and I became the president of it in the mid-'90s. Okay, if you say, I did not fact-check it, but I believe you. You worked for Richard Branson? Yes. Uh, you formed. A, you did TicketWeb? Yes. Which made money and sold? Yeah, we sold the first concert ticket on the Internet. Uh, you worked at a gaming company called OMG Pop, which you sold for a bunch of money to Zynga? Facts. You went to work for William Morris Endeavor and did digital stuff for them for a bunch of years. Yes, Ari Emanuel hired me to work for him. You are an acerbic man from Philadelphia. Yes, although people from Philadelphia would tell you I'm from the main line, so. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> you related to Milton Friedman? Yes, he is my great uncle and winner of the Nobel Prize and proud Rutgers graduate. Wikipedia is correct. Yeah. I did not know. And you're CEO of Overtime. That is also factually correct. Which I've written about. It is a sports media startup. You've just raised a second big honking round of financing. Media is supposed to have now fallen out of favor after being in favor. But there are a couple startups, like yourself, a couple specifically in sports, that are interesting to investors right now. So we'll talk about all of that. Good? I'm good. Deal. Yeah. Okay, Deal. Let's, let's start with overtime. I wrote about this, I think, about a year ago. Yeah. When you raised your first round, it's an interesting idea. Will you tell people what you think it is? Yeah. Uh, with Overtime, we are trying to build uh, the biggest global sports network in the world. It's called ESPN. No, it will be called Overtime. Okay, got it. So that's the big mission and statement. Also, and by the way, none of the ones that you'll mention are global in nature because sports is governed by rights, and every sports league sells its rights to different publishers in every territory, and we don't focus on rights-based content. So we are trying to build something that's truly global 
and a distributed sports network, meaning we're on every platform you can imagine, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitch, TikTok, anywhere that we can be. And we're specifically geared towards kind of the Generation Z audience or the audience that has fallen off from watching traditional live sports, which is the way that I grew up. And, and what you're also focused on, at least you were a year ago when I was spending time looking at you, was, was high school sports and high school athletes. And there are other high school sports sites, and they're focused on scores or trying to figure out who's going to get recruited to whomever. There's, that's been around for a while. You said, no, these are celebrities, people like Mac McClung. Um, did I get his name right? McClung. McClung. Zion Williamson, who you probably heard of now. You guys were taking footage of them in high school. Um, and then crazy dunks they were doing, et cetera, and then distributing that around the internet. That was yeah. kind of your main yeah, sort of so focus I, a I year ago. Yeah, so I would say some of that is correct. I mean, we don't have a site because young people don't go to websites. Yeah. Sorry, Vox. Uh, we, I'm just nodding. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we don't. I don't really cover high school sports. High you don't cover, you cover high school athletes. We cover athletes. the most dynamic young people across sports. So we're in four verticals, basketball, football, soccer, and video games. The, the video game folks that we cover, it has nothing to do with high school sports. Soccer is global. There's no high school soccer in America that's left at any level. They play in academies and stuff like that. Football is very much driven by high school, and basketball is primarily driven by club sports. Uh, and now we have rights in in college as well. So our focus really is kind of finding the 30 or 40 most dynamic young people who have a chance to be pros and following them. And I, I make that distinction because typically high school sports has literally covered the school and the teams, and it's been about feeding content to parents. So for us, we set out to say, like, our goal isn't to have parents as an audience. Our goal is to make a sports channel for the next generation. And I, I knew or had an instinct from running the digital talent business at WME, which is a, a global talent agency, that part of the reason all of these YouTube stars were so popular is that people like to watch young people who are like them, who they feel they can relate to uh, and aspire to with less distance between them than there is between them and, let's say, LeBron James. Um, and those people are typically 17, 18 years old. But we don't do scores. We don't say who won. We don't say what place they're in. We don't do Look playoffs. at this crazy thing, 15-second clip of someone doing something amazing, it, usually it, on court. It, it's true, but every almost every clip is tied to, to a character that you've been following all along. So if you sent me an amazing dunk and said, you should post this, I, I most likely would say, nobody knows who you are. It's not about the highlight. It's about the ongoing story. So in, in a weird metaphor, I think about what we do is almost like Saturday Night Live. I was going to say the real world. Yeah, every year there's a cast. And sometimes those cast members move on and sometimes they don't. And you tell essentially a global story around them. You follow those characters and then sometimes, you know, you follow them as they go on to do other things. That's where we started. You know, we covered Trey Young, who's on the Atlanta Hawks, who's having a rookie of the year season. We did our first show with him when he was in 11th grade. And now he's an NBA player and we just shot more content with him. So it's really covering those kids, but it's, having a relationship with them on their journey as our audience moves with them too. So whether it's the real world or or another analogy, in most places, 
when someone is a star or a YouTube vlogger, you have there's a direct relationship with money at some point. At some point, they're yeah. getting paid. Yeah. And in most cases, with the high school athletes you're talking about, you're not paying them. In fact, they can't be paid Correct. if they're going to go to college. Correct. Right? I, I don't make the rules around eligibility in NCAA. But right. yes, and, and I think many people feel that they should be paid. Um, you know, you can go pro in golf or tennis when you're 13 years right. old and it doesn't have a problem, but you can't do that in basketball or football. So our value transaction with them is we help build their brand. We put forth 100% positive coverage of them. There's no got you's. There's nothing on there. And as a result, somebody like Mac McClung, who might have started with twenty or 30,000 followers, by the time he got to college, he had three-quarters of a million followers. Was he at Georgetown? Yeah, he's yeah. at Georgetown playing for Patrick Ewing. And that's an asset for him. It means whether he makes the NBA or not, he has a platform. And that's a direct result of essentially the value exchange between us and him. And just to be clear, do you even have, you can't have contracts with these guys, even though they're not. not no, no, no. Right? You just cover them. You the say, way hey, Mac, we're going to take a lot ESPN of footage. ESPN doesn't have a contract with KD or Steph Curry. Right, they do have contracts with the leagues. They pay a lot of money for those for rights those to rights. show those Correct. clips. Yeah. And what you've done is you have cheap slash almost no-cost content, which I get the appeal of that. There's a level a of cost startup. in the sense that our business is based on the fact that we have 2,000 stringers across the globe, anywhere from Lithuania to France to Denmark. Stringers a kid with an iPhone. United. Yeah, kid, community college student, uh -huh. 22, 23, 17. We have our own proprietary software. We spent two years building. On the front end, it allows seamless capture of highlights and upload even in low network situations. It tags them. And on the back end, we ingest a quarter of a million clips fully tagged with games and players every year. We so, say go to the game, take footage, focus on Mac McLung or Zion yep, Williamson yep. or whoever the Lithuanian is, and and send us your best stuff. Well, they don't send it. It, 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 get, it, gets, it, it gets fed. So I can literally sit at home and watch as clips come in in real time, yeah. and we have various people who are who publish for us, and they sit and they're like, wow, that's an incredible play, and it's on the internet in one second. And across essentially non-professional sports where these kids are playing AAU basketball or club sports or high school sports, nobody has ever really in real time covered that, and that was really our advantage. It was the breath and the speed. So it's not n zero cost, but still very low cost. Because, right? again, you're not paying you're not buying rights. Design Correct. You don't have to pay the NBA any yeah. money. So I get the appeal of that. I get the model of that. Um, and I can see why that would be a venture business. Uh, and then the, the on the end of it, right, you distribute your stuff. Not on a website. Instagram, Twitter, et Right, we have multiple accounts on every single platform. And then that stuff gets picked up by other outlets like House of Highlights, the Bleacher Report uh, Instagram account, or ESPN. Everyone who wrote about you said, oh, look at this Mac McLung dunk, which ended up on SportsCenter. So I get the appeal of why you'd want to distribute this stuff broadly. But uh, a couple years ago, everyone said, yes, you must distribute all your stuff broadly on all the social networks and YouTube, et cetera. And now everyone says, well, but you don't actually make money there, and there's lots of problems there, and you don't control that, and they're not actually in the business of helping their media partners necessarily. Um, so how does that work for you guys as a business? Right. And and people say that because they have a very traditional old-school mentality about media. I would say in the very beginning, you know, when there were five of us in a room and almost every highlight was shot by one of the five of us on an iPhone— we would capture stuff of a Zion Williamson in 11th grade or any of these other people. And all the folks you mentioned, ESPN, Fox, NBC, other folks would come and say, hey, can we license this footage from you? 
you know, we'll pay you $500 or $1,000. And I said, you can actually have it for free as long as you leave our watermark on it. And so when we were no one, everyone was blasting our content all around the internet. And investors used to say, wow, I see you guys everywhere. Well, they didn't see us with our 2,000 followers. They saw it elsewhere. But that was a value transaction. And in return, that's built us millions and millions of followers. So now we don't need to do that. It's, it's beneficial to have them share it. But I think you have to think about it in different ways. What you're talking about is primarily short-form content. And short-form content is not a big moneymaker. It does two things. One is it introduces you to a bunch of these characters. And then we have 13 series on YouTube and four series on Snapchat. Uh, so that's the long-form content. You can watch them there. They're playing in airports all over the place. And just to be clear, long-form on YouTube or Snapchat means seven minutes? It's anywhere from eight to 22 minutes. Okay. But the real value is that what you're building is you're building a highly engaged community. And so there's this perception of media, which is I make this thing, it's a video, it's a podcast, it's something else, I push it out there, and then people that I don't know sit out there and watch it, and then they move on to consume the next thing. For us, what we're really trying to do is build a highly, highly engaged community. And as an example... I was at the NBA All-Star Game where I saw you, and I met a person. That's a cool name drop, huh? <laughs> yes. You or the All-Star Game? Both. And I met a person who is, you know, very, very high up at one of the large social networks, and that person said, didn't know who we were. That person's son was there and said, oh, my gosh, overtime, I watch you guys all the time. We sent them a T-shirt and a sweatshirt, and that person sent me an email today and said, my son has not taken off this sweatshirt since you sent it to him. And I don't think that that person was like, felt the same way if you sent them a sweatshirt from five other media companies that I could name because those people focus on pushing content out. They don't focus on building community. You know, I have full-time people on the athlete relations side. We have people who respond to hundreds and hundreds of DMs that we get, who comment, who engage with the people. There's a whole segment of people who love overtime only for what goes on in the comments. Like we have roast battles where our people will actually literally roast kids in the comments and they turn that into a show. So it's not it's not an accident that, you know, I ran a community gaming site for five years, and a lot of the value was in that community and in that network. Let me just accelerate it a little bit. So let's say everything's going great yeah. for you. And in the next couple of years, you keep getting bigger and bigger and building more audience and more community. In the end, you still need to generate revenue, right? Correct. Especially in the model we're in now, right, where yeah. venture where investors are less interested in sort of what you might become. And, like, you still have to prove out a business. For sure. So you are going to make money how? Yeah. I, I, so I would say two things. I will definitely tell you how we currently make money, which is how we will also make money in the future. But I will also say that instead of launching a, a media company where we went into a highly commoditized area, news, technology, where we had nothing original to say and we couldn't point to any audience segment that we owned, instead we went into a traditionally sleepy and less exciting area, high school sports, we made it, in the words of my children, lit. And we own that audience segment. So when large media companies look at us, does it matter if we do a billion views or a billion and three views? What matters is that we have captured the young people. So some of the people who used to share our content won't even share our content anymore because they're threatened by us. They see that we have aggregated this group that they cannot aggregate. And that's really different and that's valuable. We make money in three ways. Number one, 
We work with brands. We do millions of dollars of brand revenue already. So they're paying you to make what? They sponsor shows that we make. Uh-huh. They want to so reach— Such a show brought to you by Gatorade. Yeah. yeah. They want to reach our audience in a way that seems authentic and organic. We first started working with endemic brands to sports, apparel, Gatorade, other folks like that, and have grown beyond that. The second thing is we're very focused on commerce. We have generated substantial revenues in selling apparel. We have over 25 SKUs. We release every season. Sweatshirts. Sweatshirts, T-shirts, shooting sleeves, socks, everything. Like We act like we are building the next Nike or Adidas. And it works because the same reason that you might wear a Patriots jersey or a Giants jersey <clears throat> or a Mike Kafka Eagles jersey. There you go. You got it. Because you want to represent. And I think that's a large extent of why people uh, wear our apparel. Um, we seed it with athletes and influencers. And, and it means something in the world. And so commerce isn't something that we got 10 years into our business model and we're like, we have to sell stuff. That was built from day one. And then the third is experiential and live. So our ultimately, like our big, big picture goal is to start our own league so that we don't have to buy rights, that we can be fully vertically integrated. And until we get to that point, we will start doing tournaments and events and other kinds of sports IP that we can create and own globally. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about this after the break, but before we get there, just one big picture question, right? Trish, hack journalism requires a rule of three, right? Then you can call something a trend. Yeah. Um, so there are, th- it's partly because it's it's selection bias, right? I'm looking at them, but I'm thinking of you, The Athletic, subscription sports site, uh, and now what is the Action Network, which yeah. is gambling, right? They're all they're all different businesses, but they're all sports related. They've all attracted venture money recently. Mm-hmm. Is there something thematic about sports, do you think, that's interesting to investors now, or that's just randomly three different companies that seem appealing? Well, I would say in terms of gaming, which is the euphemism for betting, yeah. sure. I mean, that that is a huge transition in, in this country that will We're get, be We ongoing. have legalized gambling now. Yes. Legalized sports in person. Yep. In person. Yes. In person in different states. Yes. I would say in general, sports is amazing because it's it's such a large vertical. It's filled with an enormous amount of passion. Sports is an ongoing news cycle. I could get into food and I could tell you, Peter, I have a brownie recipe. And you're like, why now? I mean, I have brownie recipes. Or I could tell you, I have this kid, he's 17, he's explosive, he's going to be bigger than LeBron. Those are two different things. Sports is really tough because I'd say about 80% of venture investors have no interest in sports whatsoever. They make sports jokes. Sport ball, I get it. Yeah, you, you mean, you mean they're, they yeah. are nerds or nerd adjacent and they don't actually like sports? That was said by you, but... Something to that extent. So it's actually pretty challenging. Um, we found some investors who like the market dynamics. But I would say— Although, By the way, if you watch a Golden State Warriors game, the front row is full sure. of dudes who— Ben Horowitz, like my sports, investor. Right? Yes. Yeah, so, so there are people, and that's why they're one of our investors. And I think they get it. And the thing about sports is if you go to a movie or you watch a TV show, the ending is always going to be the same. Whereas you watch a game, yep. anything could happen. And so— I think there's interest, but the fact that all three of those were funded, I think, is probably just a coincidence. They just represent different parts of the market dynamic. Thanks for blowing holes in my bullshit trend story, Dan Porter. All right, I'm going to think of a new one. We're going to take a quick break. Back in a minute. 
Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Peter Kafka. I'm back here with Dan Porter. He's drinking water, not talking because he doesn't believe in multitasking. I like sparkling water, though. That's pretty good, though. That's venture water you're drinking right there. (laughs) One other question about overtime. This is something that that you are the CEO of. You are the co-founder of. Correct. Your co-founder is half your age? He is uh, exactly half my age. How do you meet a co-founder half your age, and and how do the two of you decide to build a business instead of making a buddy movie or something else? Something unseemly, maybe. Yes, that's a good question. And he's a a tremendously smart individual. Zach Wiener is his name. We met because initially when I was working at WME William Morris Endeavor, I just had an early glimpse into the fact that the younger audience wasn't watching live sports And and your job at William Morris was to do what? I was the head of digital. So I ran the venture fund. I did all the digital strategy. I built the digital talent division. I worked on podcasting, virtual reality, anything digital. It was like broadly across the whole agency. Um, And subsequently, after I started working there, WME acquired IMG, which is a big sports rights agency. And I also worked on digital there. And so I was seeing in 2013, 2014, that various clients, leagues, other people were pointing out, they were coming to us and saying, wow, can we work with your digital talent to re-engage kids in sports and live sports? And that's a whole other podcast discussion. Why aren't they watching live sports? Any number of reasons. They don't want to sit in front of a TV for three hours. It's slow. It has commercial breaks. They don't have cable. They can watch Ninja play Fortnite on Twitch. They can watch Game of Thrones. They don't have cable. There are a million different things, but the fact is that it's true. And, you know, the joke is that parents would say, well, my kid will never have a TV in their room growing up. And, of course, they have a phone and a computer yeah. and, and multiple screens. But they're they're just watching other stuff. And the other thing is... Well, kids have short attention spans. I watch my fill-in-the-blank friend, nephew, niece, child scroll through Instagram. Well, they're watching shows. They, they just have short attention span for old people content that hasn't changed in 30 years. But, you know, my kids who are 17 and 20 will watch lots of shows that are just formatted better for them. And so I knew that there was an opportunity there. But I knew that I had certain advantages. I knew how to build a company and a platform. But I knew I had limitations, too, in that I'm not the target demographic. And I had not built something in sports. And so I asked a guy, I went to Princeton, and I asked a younger guy who went to Princeton, who I had met through startup, if he knew anyone. That kind of younger guy, Josh, had gone to Stuyvesant with Zach, uh, my co-founder. In New York City High School. They had both. Elite they, New York City they Public had both been on the chess team. Yes, they took the SHSAT, got in. And so oh, through this Facebook post, he introduced me to Zach. He's like, oh, I know this old guy who wants to build a company around sports, and I know this young guy who had started a sports company in college. And he introduced us, and we just had a lot of chemistry around our shared So he was how old when you met him? He's like 25 now, right? He was probably 22 when I met him. And do you have to broker that through his parents? It just seems a little... I a little, little eyebrow raising. I did not. He's a very mature, 
uh, amazingly brilliant individual. But the, the funny thing is that after we started working together formally, his mom figured out that my dad, Jerry Porter, retired professor from University of Pennsylvania, had been Zach's advisor in college. So that worked out. Yeah. So this is like when someone says, I have a great idea, but I don't know how to program. I need a technical co-founder. Right, and you said yeah. I have a cool idea, but I'm too old to make a sports thing aimed at. They're not even millennials, right? They're yeah. I, I'm what, probably. What, what do we call younger than millennials? I'm probably not humble enough to yeah. say that. I still probably believe I could have. I just realized that it, it would, would work be a, better. It'd be advantageous to, old guy. to know the things that I know and and to know the things he knew. And by the way, and he could say no one says lid anymore, Dan. Yes, now it something, is exactly something. true. And and that's not. It's it's funny because. There's a segment of investors, a couple particularly uh, in lower Manhattan, who said to my face, I will not invest in your company because young people are watching the content and you're old. And these were genius investors who themselves had never actually started anything but said that to me. <laughs> but, but, I, but I understood their um, ageist point and the fact that they completely misunderestimated me. But I look, I understood the things that I knew and I understood this is why we have Dan on the podcast. And and I understood the things where I needed to build a platform to get other people to know. And by the way, it's like I don't know everything about basketball or football or soccer or video games, but I do know how to build a company and hire people and nurture them and bring on young people and do that. And 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 that's part of the game. And and Zach had built a company in college where he had 300 freelance writers. And I knew in what became essentially our stringer system where we have all of these people, I didn't know how to recruit those people. I didn't know how to go to college and find somebody and say, take out your phone and do this. You're the, and, you're the Steve Buscemi guy. The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and he knew how to do that. Adventure question, since we're, we're bagging on venture people, yes. some of them. Uh, so you just raised, what, 24? 23. And before that? I only raised in prime numbers. And before that, it was, what, 9? Before that, it was 2.5 and then 9.4, which is not a prime number. but Okay, so you've raised 9 tens of millions three. of dollars. Yes. 430-ish? Yeah, 30-ish. In a couple of years. Yes. Um, you've, you've been an investor. You've built and sold companies. You know your way back and forth around startup financing. Uh, we are at a moment now where people are saying, hey, maybe venture investing has problems. Uh, maybe being uh, blitz scaling, uh, the, the, any version of this. We just had uh, Bryce Roberts explaining why you should take less money or no money. Um, did you ever consider, hey, maybe we shouldn't raise a ton of money right away because that is going to force us to get to a valuation that's very high. We have to grow into that valuation. There are all kinds of pitfalls there. Or did you say, I know exactly what I'm doing. I have massive expectations, and that's why I'm going to raise a ton of money quickly. And the way you would have done five or ten years ago. Well, I feel like we did both in a way. Like we raised a seed round of two and a half million dollars, which was, used to be a crazy number is now yes, standard. It was very. It was not easy to do when we started. I didn't get paid in the very beginning, and for the first year. That's all we spent. We only had 10 people. There was no blitzscaling. There was building stuff that didn't work and figuring stuff out. But I think when we hit that threshold, and it was different. In the Series A, we went in and we pitched over time. In the Series B, there wasn't a room that we went into where people didn't know who we were. And, you know, we're trying to build something really big. Like, there are 2.3 billion people under 25 in the world, and I got to believe at least half of them like sports. And so you don't go about getting a big audience and trying to build a big network like that by doing it incrementally. Content is not inexpensive. And by the way, if you look at who, in, who is in sports, 
it's all massive billion-dollar global media companies. So I wasn't trying to build a mom-and-pop app so I could watch my eighth grader play basketball. I was trying to build something bigger. Is part of this because you have been a successful entrepreneur in the past, you've made money selling companies, that the idea of selling, you know, sold OMG Pop for 200-ish million dollars, right, to Zynga. A significant amount of money, you got a chunk of it. Does having done that then change your perspective on, on your ambitions for company number three slash four? I mean, this is probably your fourth or fifth, I think, actually. It changes. Well, my ambitions are always the same in every single one. I want to build the biggest thing in the world. You want to make a giant thing. Yeah. I want to make it because I want, because I feel like the world wants it. I want to make it because personally, I want to spend my time building something big and meaningful. I will say that despite the fact that I've had high-level corporate jobs for three different companies and I've sold two startups combined for a quarter of a billion dollars, I pitched probably 65 people when we started. 45, after I left the meeting, never even responded. They never even gave me a no. And many other people said no. A few small, amazing investors, uh, Jeff Jordan at Andreessen, Bijan at Spark, uh, Ian at Graycroft, they said yes, and they believed in us. But I thought, well, like, I'm Dan Porter. I did some stuff. Look, Business you know? Insider has written about me extensively. Yes, I was ranked number 432 most influential in tech in 2002. I've been a guest columnist for so, Rico. Exactly. Um, but it didn't matter. Like, they just didn't believe. But I knew from some of the early things that I saw that there was a huge amount of potential there, and I, and I just believed, so... Before we started talking, you were talking about what you were doing prior to this, which was scouting out a gaming house in Williamsburg. Yes. Which is not a euphemism, but tell me what that means. So I've always been, obviously, you know, I, I ran a, a gaming site. You played on said gaming site yeah. in a car game called Hovercart. And uh, when I was at WME, I started the E-League, which is a televised esports competition, and I learned a ton from my two boys who have always loved to play video games. And I've understood for a while that the desire to watch people who are far better than you compete at playing these games is a meaningful desire and that our audience isn't like, well, that's on a keyboard and that's on a field, so one is true yeah. and one is false. They enjoy it and it's sports. Um, and so I set out to do that as part of what we're doing once we got to be mature in other sports. And we built a Fortnite team. We recruited people. We competed. We've won tens of thousands of dollars. We have a what I feel is a pretty good team. But a lot of the people in the competitive gaming space have found that there are media attributes to their businesses that are as valuable. And what that means is that it's almost as valuable for them to rent a $50,000 a month gaming mansion in Los Angeles, put a bunch of gamers in there and let them make content about their life. Because in a way, it's the same as our business. It's that you really so care. Just to, just to explain, so yes. you're going to rent a house in Williamsburg, you're going to yes. stock it with Except video not gamers. 50, <laughs> not 50,000 <laughs> yes. square feet. Probably. Yes couple thousand, I'm guessing, in Williamsburg. It's not cheap. Yes. And you're going to put gamers in them. Yeah. They're going to game. They're going to stream and you're gonna, game and, and we're going to create content. And you're going to, and you're going to film them gaming. Yeah. And so they'll, the content will be the actual gaming content they make It'll plus be, the content you make about them. Yes. Which is not a new idea, right? That's the real world and there's it's a not version a new of idea. like ultimate fighting championship yeah. had a Look, version of this. Ari was show. very smart. I mean, the UFC became the UFC because of that reality show. And, and the fact is that you could drop me in front of two of the best teams in the world 
And if I don't know anyone on that team, I would rather watch my six-year-old soccer game because at least I know him and I love him and I want to see him play. And so if you can't get an attachment to the characters and the individuals— so you create your yeah, own characters. It's why we stopped watching TV shows. Oh, I'm so t- oh, they killed off my favorite character. And the, and the other advantage for you here, right, is that there is no amateur status in, in gaming, right? So you can actually do contracts with these gamers. You can own their IP or whatever deal you make, as opposed to a Zion Williamson or Mac McLung where anyone can film them and broadcast that stuff. Absolutely. And the thing that I would add to that is— is that I think the thing that is special about our business is that there's an amazing point as a young person, maybe somewhere between 5th and 11th grade, where you as a young person think anything could be possible. Like, I thought I was going to be a rock and roll star. I had long hair. I played the guitar. You know, other people thought they were going to go to the NBA or they were going to do something else. And your parents and, like, yes, Dan, good for you. My parents were like, nice Jewish boys don't get to be rock stars. And my oh, grandparents no. bought me Bruce Springsteen. You should be an economist. Yeah, they bought me a Bruce Springsteen record to show <laughs> me. And I, I was like, he's half Irish and Italian, but I won't disabuse them of that notion. And so, like, that is an amazing part about being a young person, and it's actually one of the best parts. And I think that we tap into that aspiration. So when we launched our gaming team, literally we received thousands of messages from kids saying, I want to be on your gaming team. Are they good enough? No, they're definitely not good enough. But they think that that's possible, and that's amazing. Just like they watch these other kids and they think, I might be on overtime. And in fact, they might be on overtime, or they might play in a match with one of our gamers. And I think that that emotional component is really, really different than me sitting at home watching some player who gets paid $100 million a year where that distance is so great. And I come back to the idea of community, and I come back to this emotional feeling of what it means to be a young person and participate and see people like you and think you might be on overtime. And I think, in a way, that's what makes our business special. And I have a separate Instagram account, aside from my personal account, where I am the CEO of Overtime. And I follow, you know, 5,000 kids who follow us, and they DM me, and they send me messages like, I just want to let you know that in 2019, I'm going to be on overtime. And I say, great. Like, And that, that aspect of it, it's just different. And so when people are like, media companies aren't doing well, I'm like, well, media companies that are involved in the hearts and minds of kids that like tap into dreams, that celebrate all of those— those are going to do great. People who throw up a couple blog posts about the news or about technology, yeah, they're screwed, but that's hey, that's, hey, that's, hey, that's hey, not what hey, we're doing. Hey, hey, You've already hey. crossed that threshold. All right. Thank you. Jim listens, by the way. Hey, Jim. <laughs> and, and and just and, and so we're clear that this thing that I was hoping for a bunch of years, because I have kids now, that, that e-leagues and gaming was going to be sort of a, a trend that— You were hoping it was going to disappear, so yeah. it didn't— yes. we're, we're stuck with it, right? We're definitely kids, stuck with it. my kids view— Gaming, watching watching other people play video game, as 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 legitimate or frankly more interesting than watching real sports. Why is watching yeah, somebody I, run up and down the field? And yeah, get no, a concussion I, get, I get intellectually. I get intellectually why that's the case. But but the point is, that we don't think this is a blip or the equivalent no, of of a, I, of a Fortnite I, dance that comes and goes. I don't think so. I will say that that most people tend to watch games that they play. Versus I don't play football, but I'm, yeah. I watch football. They tend to watch games that they play because they want to see people who are really good and, because and they want to learn how to get better. They're going to age with it. So when they're 35, they're on their couch watching, you know, whoever 100%. the ninja is on Fortnite. 
Yes. So, like, my son played in a gaming tournament, so all of a sudden I had something at stake. Uh, and I watched it, and it was exhilarating. And at the end of four hours of watching that, I thought, oh, my gosh, there were no commercial breaks. There were no timeouts. Everything was, like, on the edge of your seat. It's a Battle Royale game, so it's like you are eliminated yeah. and you are done. I cared about one of the characters in the game because he was my son. It was an enormously exciting. By the way, I think about a third of the conversations I had at the NBA All-Star Weekend were, were about uh, gambling. Yes. Uh, another third were about Fortnite, specifically. Yes. They, everyone there, all the sports guys get Fortnite. Uh, and the rest were about podcasts. Yes. So let me ask you a question. Like, would you believe, I can't believe that people watch other people play chess. Yeah. It's so not physical. I mean, you don't have to be strong to play chess. You know, it's like the same argument. It's just— Yeah, but but chess is not very popular, right? There was Bobby Fischer back when we had literally nothing else to watch Parents aren't throwing up their arms saying 90,000 people are watching a live chess match on Twitch, which they are for some chess matches. It's just—that's considered, you know, it's it's analog, but what's the difference between watching chess, watching Fortnite, or watching people play basketball? It's all competition. And as Bobby Kotick will say— there's a finite number of people in the world who look like A-Rod, but there's way more people who look like yeah. him, and all those people want to have competitive experiences. By the way, the prize pool for the Fortnite World Cup, $100 million. Bigger than Wimbledon, bigger than almost every other sport. All right, I'm going to ruminate about this for another minute. You guys are going to listen <laughs> to this message. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's start recording again so we can hear Dan and Jelani talk about the value of <laughs> of pickup basketball versus FPS and third-party shooters. Uh, I want to ask you about, about the world of, of building startups and building apps and building successful games. You built a couple successful ones, um, at least one that didn't work. What was that one called? Thread? You showed it to me. Maybe you made me write about it. Oh, Tally. Tally. That was oh, like yeah. a, I've a built- Twitter derivative. It, it was more like a visual Reddit. So what is different about building a successful or hopefully successful startup slash app digital startup company in 2019 than when did you do OMG Pop? That was 2010-ish? 2008. 2008. Um, and TicketWeb was before that. So how, what, what, are the, what are the important changes over those times, over that time? I think that I mean, there's all the obvious things. Obviously, the cost of storage and speed of ability to do things are different. Everything is cheaper. Everything's faster. cheaper. The flip side is it's many things have been built. Some were built with the wrong time. You know, WebVan was the wrong time. FreshDirect was the right time. But I would say overall, I think that— Cosmo.com is now <laughs> exactly Uber, sort of. Yeah, or Postmates. Yeah. I, I think that there was a perception— that technology startups had to be, didn't care about brand, had to build platforms. It was all about your technology versus someone else's pure technology. And I think that so much has been built that you see in, uh, you know, direct 
DTC commerce and other things that it's not just the technology, but it's all the aspects of the business. It's, it's, it's the branding. It's, it's everything else. It's less like this is a pure arms race of my thousand lines of code versus your 5,000 lines of code. And it's more about all the other attributes around the business because it's not like everyone's at the party and nothing's ever been built anymore. So we're in this world where, you know, lot, there's lots of like, oh, we can't build media companies on the back of Facebook or Google anymore. It's too fraught. You build on someone else's platform. You can't control it. Um, that's now the new conventional wisdom for, like, media, right? Yeah. But there's this direct-to-consumer thing you just talked about, which everyone is building. A, everyone is building a retail business on Instagram. You are building a media business that is meant to be, again, distributed on a bunch of platforms. You don't own your own site. Correct. So we can't, we can't draw a linear line. Right. I'm also building a commerce business on Instagram. I think it's just silly. Like, where do I listen to this podcast? Oh, I listen to it on Apple. You don't own your own distribution. You know, I watch a TV show and it's on Spectrum Cable and it's on a Samsung TV. Oh, you don't own your own distribution. I, I just think that the way that people think about that is highly limited. And if I go and I put on an overtime t-shirt and I walk down the street here and some kid looks at me and says, yo, shout out to overtime, I think I own a relationship with that kid, whether I'm distributing it on a Samsung TV, on Instagram, on the Apple you know, podcast app, anything else like that. And you're not worried about one day Instagram turning around and saying, we're going to impose some limits, et cetera. There, if you're going to do brand, if you're going to have sponsorships, we need to limit it or we need to take a cut or anything that they can do because they own the platform. They can all make changes, but I think, number one, we're on a lot of different platforms. I didn't try to build a Facebook hacking-style media company. And I think the other thing is that we've crossed that threshold. Like, the people who consume our content really care about us, and they like us. And if we're not available in one place, they'll go find us in another place. But I think if you try to do that on day one, if you try to, here are the two mistakes you can do. Well, I need to own my audience, so on day one, I'm going to build a website that nobody knows and nobody can find, and I never get any traction. Or, wow, social media is amazing. I'm going to go there, and I'm going to use social media to drive everyone to said website because my investor said I need a website because I need to own my audience. Um, versus... I'm happy for them to come and engage with us on Discord, on Instagram, anywhere that they want to engage with us. I don't think of social media as a conduit to drive you to someplace. And I can tell the difference when I go and meet with a billion-dollar media company and the CEO of that company starts out the conversation and says, oh, I went to your website, and I think, our website, I don't even know what's, like, we have a website so we can have an email address. I'm like, why aren't you looking at our YouTube channel or our Instagram or our show on Snapchat or our stuff on Twitter or anything else like that? Um, it's just the way that, that people consume media. This is not your first time around building a company, three or four or five of these. That said, I'm, you, I'm sure you have got something wrong here. What did you get wrong where you thought, I know better than to do this, or I th would have thought this would have worked because I'm so old and I've done this so many times and I still got it wrong? Oh, I got so many things wrong. Like, when we started, I think my vision was to build a sports center for all 32,000 high schools, and we built it for about 100 high schools in the Northeast. And so here are the highlights from these yeah, games tonight. Yeah, from your school, from Stuyvesant or, you know, any place else. And that was one of the schools. Uh, they have a great badminton team. <laughs> and I think what we found was a couple things. One is nobody wanted to watch it. The kids in the game were like, I didn't really do anything 
epic in that game. The parents didn't want to watch it. And then I would have one video of Zion Williamson, and it would do more views than all 100 schools combined. And so I was like, oh, we're being very literal about this. And so we just scrapped that whole thing. Second is like, oh, I need to have an app where people go. And then I started an Instagram account as a way to promote the app. And the Instagram account had massive engagement and blew up and built our whole community. And I thought, that that's way more valuable than trying to support Were you app. better at figuring out your screw-ups and moving on to the next thing than you would have been num- that number of years ago? Does that part accrue to you to your benefit? Like, okay, I've seen this. I know when this when this is broken and this thing's working to do- drop that thing. Or are you still a regular human and you still want to make the first thing work because that was your original idea? I think that, I don't know if I'm better, but it's less devastating. Like, you just realize, like, okay, that, that really didn't work. Even... Even in other things, like when we started out covering football, we filmed football games and chopped up highlights, and it turned out that what people wanted to see was like the day in the life with all of these great kids, and we'd get 2,000 views of a game with like three touchdowns and half a million views of hanging out for 20 minutes with a kid who's going to be in the NFL in two or three years. And so you just realize like, it's not that devastating. Like, as long as we learn and we keep moving relentlessly and we build the train while it's moving, we will get there. So I think I'm better at not having that break my heart every time it goes wrong. You spent a bunch of time in Hollywood working for uh, William Morris. It's Ari Emanuel. What's the show? Uh, Entourage. Entourage. That's the Ari character. Doesn't really look like him, but there's similarities. So you got you got very exposed to Hollywood and big media companies and what they're thinking. Do you have a sense of sort of are they ready for the moment in time that we're in now, where AT and T owns Time Warner and Netflix is the most dominant uh, player in Hollywood, uh, and Apple is coming in a couple of weeks to to start putting out their own content? Is Hollywood ready for it now? For a long time, they clearly weren't. Are they ready now? I think that there's an element that's ready in that. On the production company, on the agency side, they're sellers of content. If you're buying, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're the Reverend Jim Jones or you're Netflix or you're— Don't sell to Jim Jones. <laughs> also or you're, you're AMC. Like, their job is to make content that right. people so they're delighted buy. that there yeah, are more there buyers. Are more buyers they got there that are mo- more buyers than ever. Of course, today Steven Spielberg is like, streaming services shouldn't be able to compete for yeah. the Oscars. You know, there are people who've done the same thing for 30 years who don't see the writing, but there's a whole crop of young people who are also subscribers to Netflix and users of Instagram and viewers of YouTube, and they understand. I think ultimately the big challenge is that sometimes the pie gets smaller. You know, Craigslist disrupted real estate classifieds, and that was devastating to print media, and the pie got smaller. Ultimately, there were changes that were potentially positive. So I think part of them are ready and that they're just ready to sell more to more people. But there are other things where, you know, some people don't like making stuff that's not 22 minutes. Yeah. You know, and that's the, you can't sell to television if it's not 22 minutes. For a long time, the agencies would have a digital team or a digital person, but they yeah. kind of existed to like, sort of like if Ben Stiller wanted to make a webisode or something, yes. they would work with him. But the real business was in representing Ben Stiller. So he, when he got yeah. paid 15 or $20 million a movie, has that shifted now? It has shifted to some extent. I think there are still many unnamed people who believe that they are going to bring a premium level of content to digital and to the internet. And that is a very top-down perception. 
no kid in America is like, wow, I love watching David Dobrik's vlogs or all this other stuff. I just wish it were premium and shot in 1080p. This and with is directed a at Jeffrey dollar. Katzenberg and, and Meg Whitman. It is Whitman. directed at lots of people yeah. who are trying to do but that. But that's one, that's one of the people that trying to possible. do That is possible. That's true. But I just think that people are very happy with what they're watching. And, and for me, I'm really interested in figuring out what the problems of my user, my consumer, my community member are, and building from that, rather than kind of purveying the landscape and saying, well, with all our Hollywood knowledge, this stuff is great. Watching a vlog is amazing, but what they really want is premium content and short form. And and, and by the way, there's already short form content on Netflix. You can watch the end of the effing world and the episodes are 18 minutes long. I believe Vox Media has some, some 15 yes, to 20 Yes, I, I watch episodes. some of those. They're great. They're very good. Actually. Yeah, that yeah. Ezra, Ezra is not listening. They're very well produced and they move quickly. And I think that it's like we used to have this thing in the video game business where you would play like a premium video game and the beginning of every video game would be the same. It would be like, you know, like the beginning of a movie, a so-and-so studio's production by this studio, by that studio. And five minutes later, the game would queue up yeah. and you'd start to play. And we realized we're making mobile games and you're on the 12th floor and you just want to play by the time you get down to the first floor. So we got to get you in that game within one second. And I think there still tends to be that... That's like a metaphor, but there still tends to be that divide in timing, in pacing, in voice, and in all of those things like that. And the fact is that people appreciate content that resonates with them, and the internet appeals to so much long-tail content. Unboxing, whispering, doing all—there's, you know, I read an article today about people who like to watch other people study— like no. yeah, hours of videos. Yes, right? There's but, literally everything. But, but the fact is, but that's amazing. And like that never existed because there's no television station for that. There's no format for that. Those people aren't like, wow, if I could only watch them study in HD and they spent fifty thousand dollars a minute to make that, it's amazing for them. And I think that that gets me excited and out of bed every single day. Dan, this is great. Where was I cynical enough for you? You shockingly <laughs> spared me the Kafka knives. All right. I mean, I can talk to you more about exploiting high school kids if you want. <laughs> no? I was waiting right, for that. You already did that. We already did it. Uh, so people should go check you out at Overtime.com? No. Exactly. <laughs> Come on. Uh, you're ribbing me. You should go to Overtime on Instagram. You should watch us on YouTube. We're Overtime everywhere. All right. You guys are smart. You can figure it out. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dan for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you guys for listening. I love it when you tell me that you like the show. That's awesome. It's even more awesome if you tell someone else. You could be on Twitter, Facebook, Skywriting. You could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That'd be cool. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for zero dollars and zero cents. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits the shows and my producers, Golda Arthur, Eric Johnson, and Jelani Carter. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.